Welcome to this episode of Revolution Ideology. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. And in this episode, we are finally finishing out Albert Camus' The Rebel. This is part five, um, Thought at the Meridian. So if you haven't been following along, you can catch up by watching parts one through four. Um, but this is the conclusion. This is the final section where he basically wraps up uh, his ideas, uh, though not as well as I wanted him to, which we will clearly talk about. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that just to sum up his, the title of the section thoughts at the meridian really gives us an idea of his, you know, stance. It's basically sort of the middle path, I guess, uh, which will clearly break down as we go. We're not, I'm going to skip a lot of the sections here where he's kind of just reiterating what he's already talked about, like historical murder and nihilistic murder and so forth. He has whole sections on that, that we've already discussed. So we're going to skip a lot of that. Um, you can watch those videos to get the details there. Um, so yeah, we're not going to just reiterate the whole thing. You can watch those other videos clearly. Um, so I'm going to start with a quote. He says, logically, logically, one should reply that murder and rebellion are contradictory. If a single master should in fact be killed, the rebel in a certain way is no longer justified in using the term community of men from which he derived his justification. If this world has no higher meaning, if man is only responsible to man, it suffices for a man to remove one single human being from the society of the living to automatically exclude himself from it. So basically he says, the second that a rebel murders another human, they've basically violated humanity in a sense. If we remember the rebel, when he takes his first rebellious act and Camus uses the example of the slave uh, rebelling against his master in the instant of that rebellion he realizes something recognizes something valuable within himself and then as a result valuable within all other other human beings so the second that he murders in the spirit of rebellion Camus claims he can no longer really call that a uh, pure rebellion he's violated the he's sort of the human pact and those things the, that aspect of himself and that aspect of all of the humans that are valuable Anything you want to add on that one? So from a purely historical standpoint, when I when I read this, and I've thought about it in like the earlier sections as well, um, this idea of like murder and rebellion and trying to find a way to rationalize or justify murder, which Camus is arguing against, of course, very clearly. When we think about it historically, one of the things that we've talked about often in, in a whole host of our different episodes on revolution is that revolutionaries tend to, um, whether they like it or not, recreate what they've actually just ended up overthrowing. Again, maybe with some different titles or maybe a new document or two, but, but literally kind of a top-down um, society predicated on subjugation, uh, oppression. Um, monopolies on violence and so on and so forth. And this is what it gets me thinking about is this idea that if you are going to perform some sort of true rebellion, a rebellion that has um, aims at making a more egalitarian society, a more humanist society, which Camus clearly um, interested in, it cannot start from a point of violence. It cannot start from a point of killing because then what you're doing is just recreating what you've already overthrown. If all states are are predatory in this capacity, then the new state or whatever it is you're creating, the anti-state will also end up being, um, or not even being, operating under the same um, auspices. Yeah, and Camus uses two examples, I mean many, but two main examples of the French Revolution, 
which starts out as obviously a fight against oppression and then culminates with the guillotine and the reign of terror and so forth, right? And then the main goal of this work is against, I mean, his he critiques Marxism extensively, but really Stalin's regime, right? Which, you yep. know, socialism starts out as the fight against oppression and then itself becomes incredibly violent and oppressive. You know what I mean? And that's Camus' main argument here. Um, he continues... Uh, the rebel has only one way of reconciling himself with his act of murder if he allows himself to be led into performing it, to accept his own death and sacrifice. He kills and dies so that it shall be clear that murder is impossible. He demonstrates that in reality he prefers the we are to the we shall be. Beyond that farthest frontier, contradiction and nihilism begin. So basically, Camus argues that the rebel can only murder if he himself is willing to die as well as a result of this action, because only then can it be demonstrated and maintained that murder is wrong. Right. Both, um, both literally and figuratively though. Right. Like that mm -hmm. goes back to that idea that I was just trying to articulate. Like if you are willing to kill for this cause, then the cause itself or your act of rebellion also dies. Mm -hmm. So, yep. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. So essentially for Camus, the only just, quote unquote, just murder is the one in which the murderer uh, also willingly accepts his own death. And then Camus frequently throughout in early on, in fact, and then in this section as well, uses the example of Ivan Kaliev. Kaliev? That's probably right. We're going to get shredded by someone that speaks Russian that my pronunciation yet again, but whatever. Ivan Kaliev, who I'm not going to do a whole background on, but he was a Russian revolutionary socialist and assassinated uh, one of the Grand Dukes in 1905. His actual story is pretty interesting. Um, in prison, so he get, he bombs this coach, assassinates the Grand Duke. Then he gets arrested on site. The ne that night or the next morning, I don't remember exactly the dates, the Grand Duke's wife visits him in prison, and she's a Christian, and she says, I've already forgiven you for killing my husband. If you repent... I will go to the state and ensure that your life is spared and that you are not executed. And Kaliev absolutely refuses to do so. He essentially wants to get murdered, not murdered, wants to be executed by the state. Actually, he does call it murder, but he wants to be executed by the state, uh, you know, as an example of the state's oppression and so forth. And he's already accepted his own death through this act of assassination. Uh, although I guess he takes uh, takes issue with being called an assassin, but whatever. That's neither here nor there. Anyways, this is Camus' example, is my point, of this revolutionary socialist that kills this Grand Duke and then absolutely refuses to have his life spared, and willingly he ends up getting hung um, in the gallows after a very brief trial. So this is Camus' example of sort of the just uh, rebel, I guess. Um, and interestingly, uh, Camus wrote a play actually about Kaliev and that night and what ended up happening. It's called The Just. If you're curious, you can Google it. Sometimes translated in English as The Just Assassins. But it's about that night and the revolutionary socialist group and the assassination and then the Grand Duke, uh, his wife visiting him in prison, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, it's kind of interesting. So anyways, that's Camus sort of like archetypical example of a rebel who murders but then is willing to sacrifice his own life. So for Camus, any rebel who murders but is not willing to accept their own death is contradictory 
and nihilistic. And for Camus, there are two types of this contradictory murder, nihilistic and historical. We're not going to talk about those here because he talks about them extensively. He has whole sections of the book about nihilistic and historical murder, which we've covered in other videos. So you can watch the first, you know, sections one through four if you want more detail there. Uh, so skipping those sections of this section and going on to moderation and excess. Camus talks a lot about uh, moderation and living in uh, either consuming in excess or limiting yourself to a lifestyle of moderation and how that results to the, uh, relates to the rebel and so forth. He says, quote, We now know at the end of this long inquiry into rebellion and nihilism that rebellion with no other limits but historical expediency signifies unlimited slavery. To escape this fate, the revolutionary mind, if it wants to remain alive, must therefore return again to the sources of rebellion and draw its inspiration from the only system of thought which is faithful to its origins, thought that recognizes limits. So Camus here says, rebellion within limits is the only just rebellion. And he argues that things like Stalin's you know, historical rebellion inspired by Marxism is a revolution without limits. It's willing to kill, it's willing to murder, right? In the name of rationality and history and so forth, uh, et cetera. And then the next section is thoughts at the meridian. And this is where we get, really get to the meat of Camus' sort of conclusion. Anything to add before we continue? No, I mean, I know he's focusing here uh, heavily on Stalinism and, I mean, obviously as a derivative of Marxism and where it might go awry, even though he also critiques his pure Marxism as well. But it got me thinking, mm -hmm. of course, um, of, of capitalism, right? Like there's no there's no yeah. moderation and excess, of course, with the, within the system. So whether mm -hmm. we're talking about socialist um, rebellion or capitalist rebellion, if we want to pick on um, the U.S. War for Independence or French Revolution or things along those lines, neither was able to moderate itself. The ideals were not, both the ideals and the practices were not able to moderate themselves. Yep. He says, quote, as for knowing if such an attitude can find political expression in the contemporary world it is easy to evoke. And this is only an example of what is traditionally called revolutionary trade unionism. So Camus says, there's actually an example of this happening in the modern world, uh, modern at his time, right? He's writing in the 1950s, late, very into the 1940s, early 1950s, trade unionism. You know, and he gives a bunch of examples of, you know, trade unionism has successfully achieved the 40-hour work week and so forth. Um, and this is effective, according to Camus, because it starts with reality as its basis, right? He has issue with rebellion that starts in the ideal. And he critiques like Saad and Stirner and so forth. He calls them the philosophical revolutionaries, right? Uh, essentially. He says, quote, it is because trade unionism start, started from a concrete basis, the basis of professional employment, while the Caesarian revolution starts from doctrine and forcibly introduces reality into it. So he's saying, essentially, let's just use Marxism as the example, because that's his main example throughout the book. Marxism starts as a way of thinking and then tries to make reality mold into this philosophy. But he says trade unionism starts from concrete reality, right? The worker, professional employment so forth, and then from there creates this rebellion. Now, let's pause here and talk about many people interpret Camus' conclusions of the rebel as some form of anarchism. In fact, he's often charged with anarcho-syndicalism in this work, specifically in this section, specifically because he talks about trade unionism 
And there are some others uh, that we'll talk about in a few minutes, quotes where he alludes to this way of thinking. Very clearly, I think this section has anarchist uh, undertones for sure, trade unionism being just one. Though I will argue that train, his mention of trade unionism isn't itself necessarily anarchist. It's not as if the anarchists have a monopoly on trade unionism. Socialist trade unionism is just as you know, prominent uh, as anarchist trade unionism, especially when Camus is writing in the 1950s, right? Anything to add to that? But the distinction between the two, and this is what he talks about mm-hmm. in the next quote, hopefully I'm not stealing your thunder, on the contrary, claims to base itself on economics. Marxism does, socialism does, but it's primarily political and ideological. It can't by its very function avoid terror and violence done to the real. Despite its pretensions, it begins in the absolute and attempts to mold reality. The difference here is that with these trade unions that he's romanticizing, maybe, and again, he doesn't use this term, we're using it, these more anarchist mm-hmm. type of trade unions or syndicalist type of trade unions, they're actually more, and it's kind of funny, historically material than Marxism itself because they're starting from the point of departure of the workers themselves that are actually engaged in whatever this specific work is, whatever this trade is, they are the ones that are collectively organizing. Um, and then, of course, creating those relationships with the other organizations organizations rather than having it brought in from the top down by a Politburo, so to speak. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, and I think that's his main point. And we have to remember, right, earlier on, he charges Marx with being a prophet, right, mm-hmm. and predicting all of these things, etc., right? He really does critique Marx and Marxism as being, professing an ideal and being ideological, right? And of course, that's blasphemy if you're a Marxist and you're like, oh, my God, how could he misinterpret Marx? He's so not much? even a worker, a materialist, right? No. right? But, yeah, Marx yeah. was not a worker. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's that simple. Quote, on the very day when the Caesarian Revolution triumphed over the syndicalist and libertarian spirit, revolutionary thought lost in itself, a counterpoise of which it cannot, without decaying, deprive itself. Now let's fill in terms here, right? He says, over the syndicalist and libertarian spirit. Very clearly, he's talking about anarchism, even though he doesn't specifically use that term, right? This is why people say this section is anarcho-syndicalist coming from Camus, which I think obviously is justified. Um, Basically, he argues that when Marxism became more popular than anarchism, revolutionary spirit lost the aspect of itself which prevented it from, you know, decaying into totalitarianism that's he says that was the turning point of rebellion when marxism became the most common form of rebellion right when the anarchists were defeated and you know learn about the spanish revolution etc right when that happened that's when revolution became totalitarian because it lost its the aspect of it that you know, had any kind of moderation and limiting factor to it. What do you think about that? The first thing I wanted to talk about that actually jumped out to me real quick was the idea that he's calling this the Caesarian revolution as in after yeah, like, I was hoping you were going to explain that. Yeah. Like, so, 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 and I, I, can only read between the lines here as not the expert on Camus that, that you are. And I don't know that I, well, I don't know that you'd call yourself an expert, but you definitely went through this as the sociologist in, in more depth mm-hmm. than I did. But like as the historian, when we think of what Julius Caesar, and, and that's what I think he might be referencing. It yeah, was he is, yeah. 
it was top down, right? Like this was mm-hmm. a top down revolution. Caesar was, was, was wild. He was a populist. He's wildly popular for a host of reasons. I'm not going to go through all of Roman history right now by any stretch of the imagination. But what Caesar was attempting to do was make better conditions for like the common people, as well as, of course, importantly, veterans and his soldiers, which were being wildly mistreated by the prior regime and the Senate and so on and so forth. But he was doing this with a very heavy hand, which is what made it so controversial. Like, so he is trying to make Rome, or at least Rome for Romans specifically, a more equitable place for the actual heavy lifters of the empire, right? Soldiers and workers and so on and so forth. That That's literally what he was doing. So he is a, a champion of the people, a populist, but he's doing it in a totalitarian way, which is where a lot of the bro- the, the, the blowback comes from. Well, Mm-hmm. Fast forward millennia here, that's that's essentially what the socialists are doing as well. And I think that's where Camus coming from is, I, I mean, that's what he's critiquing. And what he's arguing is if this is the way that the rebellion is going to take place, there's no way to moderate that. It will continue to get out. It will go further and further out of control. In the case of Caesar, of course, he ends up being assassinated. In the case of a Stalin or so, I mean, it, it ends up, it ends in gulags, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's my take. I'm not sure if that's exactly what you were looking no, for. That's exactly correct. Yeah. Okay. And that's exactly what he's saying when he's saying this is Caesarian, you know, revolution. That's exactly what he's saying. Yeah. Um, my critique here, and like, I guess we should just say, right, for the most part, sections one through four of this series, we haven't really critiqued, I don't think, Camus very much, but I'm going to here in this final conclusion section. You know, I don't think... I don't agree, I guess, with Camus that anarchism has some inherent limiting factor, right? That it has a something just fundamental of anarchist philosophy and action prevents it from becoming eventually decaying into totalitarianism, right? I don't really see that. And Camus doesn't actually explain in depth his position there, which I think is unfortunate, I guess. I'll just say that. But isn't it the promise of the ideology? Uh, or I mean, we already have a whole episode on whether anarchism is an ideology or not. I, I know right. you took more of the stance that it is, and I took more of the stance that it isn't. But regardless, let's say that it is. Isn't that the promise of something that has actually never completely come to fruition? I think, and I think that's where he's coming from in mm-hmm. the 1950s when he's writing. We've seen what what a rebellion, well, by Julius Caesar looks like. We've seen what the French Revolution looks like. We've seen what the U.S. War for Independence looks like. And when he's writing, he sees what the um, what the Bolshevik Revolution looks like. And 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 we know that they have none of those exercised any moderation. We, and maybe because it's an impossibility, that might be right for a future episode, have not seen a full-blown anarchist revolution um, or rebellion, so we don't know if there is an ability within anarchism to moderate itself. If we look at some of the other philosophers we've talked about heavily on this this podcast in the past, the Bakunins and the Kropotkins and the Goldmans and so on and so forth – it certainly philosophically feels like it would be self-moderating, most notably by Bakunin's definite and Kropotkin's both definitions of like natural law, like human nature and things mm-hmm. along those lines. But but then the other revolutions that we've talked about might argue that that's contradictory, that we haven't seen that work in any other revolution. Why would it work in an anarchist one? Right. Um, I mean, Camus gets off the hook, right? Like you said, is we've never seen an anarchist revolution get to a point where it could turn totalitarian, right? We clearly have seen it, you know, Camus, like you mentioned, the Bolshevik revolution. That's what he's critiquing here. We've seen it in those examples, but we've never seen the anarchist revolution. I mean, the closest we've gotten is Spain and it was, you know, the civil war 
didn't allow it to take its course, right? Derail the revolution completely. Right, so, right. Never seen we've it. seen, we've seen, I mean, N- Nestor Machna, we did an episode on them. That, that got pretty far. But again, that the Bolsheviks themselves yep. are the ones that, that, that put that one out. Um, some would argue right. like modern ANCAPs or whatever kind of about this, but, but, but we would argue, of course, wholeheartedly that like, like you can't do that. You can't like, that's, you can't have anarchism and capitalism together. That's an impossibility. Not to mention that like they have been 0% successful as having a revolution. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Like so, it's fun I, to be on Reddit, but there's nothing in real life. Yeah. I mean, modern day really at all, you know, whatever, like making their little camps in Montana or whatever they're doing, but that's not, that's not remotely success that's not even as successful as as the anarcho-syndicalists of spain or the other examples that we brought up so yeah rojava that's a good one not that they're fully anarchist but they're a lot in the same thread i guess yeah right? democratic confederalism to me reminds me of some sort of, i mean there's a there's a cross section there of like socialism and anarchist philosophy there's a little bit of i don't i, I actually oh, thought a lot about that when i was reading this section right because many people say that that's the middle ground between totalitarian socialism Marxism, etc., and full-blown anarchism. Many people are right. Google Murray Bookchin, right, is the right. meme, right? That this democratic confederalism that was inspired by Bookchin's ideas is that middle path, right? Maybe there's something to that. Shout out Abdul Kalan. Okay. Yeah, which we have an episode on that. Check it out if you want to yeah. learn more uh, about that. Quote, the history of the first international when German socialism ceaselessly fought against the libertarian thought of the French, the Spanish, and the Italians is the history of the struggle of German ideology against the Mediterranean mind, the commune against the state, concrete society against absolutist society, deliberate freedom against rational tyranny, finally, altruistic individualism against the colonization of the masses are then the contradictions that express once again the endless opposition of moderation to excess, which has animated the history of the Occident since the time of the ancient world. I think it's funny that he uses so many euphemisms without ever saying anarchism, right? He mentions the first international. He mentions, like, what was the one? Trade unionism. He mentions even the Mediterranean mind, but never once does he mention anarchism. I'm sure that there's a reason for that, but I don't know what it is. Um, I don't know enough about, you know, the specifics of why he might not use that term. Maybe just because it would have got him even more quickly, you know, banished from his circle. I mean, he gets him and Sartre blow up and don't speak to each other after this anyways. He might as well have just gone for it, you know. But maybe he didn't anticipate that that was going to happen. I don't know. Anyways, he never uses the term anarchism, which I think is really weird. Um, Yeah. Uh, Quote, again, historical absolutism. And by that, he's referring to Marxists. Historical absolutism, despite its triumphs, has never ceased to come into collision with an irrepressible demand of human nature, of which the Mediterranean, where intelligence is intimately related to the building light of the sun, guards the secret. Rebellious thought, that of the commune or of revolutionary trade unionism, has not ceased to deny this demand, and the presence of bourgeois nihilism as well as Caesarian socialism. So basically, he's arguing here that the Mediterranean way of thinking, i.e. anarchism, is actually informed and limited by human nature. So you just mentioned, right, the ideas of even Kropotkin and a Bakunin and that anarchism is in line with human natural law, right? Camus actually makes similar arguments here, though kind of vaguely, I guess. He never comes out and says it, but that's kind of what he's saying, right? Yeah. 
Then I like this because he gives us a little insight into this moderation thing. He says, in 1950, excess is always a comfort and sometimes a career. Moderation, on the one hand, is nothing but pure tension. So he's saying it's actually easy. Sort of the default status quo is excess, that you actually have to work for moderation. And I mean, this is in the 1950s. Imagine now, right, if Camus could write about what's going on in our century, like, oh, my God. Yes, excess is the norm right? Moderating yourself is like a Herculean effort just to like not buy a thing and not exploit someone somewhere by your consuming of goods and so forth. Like it it, it is literally impossible, not to mention like the killing of animals and the exploitation of the natural environment and like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's like impossible. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's Anything easy to add to that. Um, no, I mean, yes, yeah, so much to add, but that's a whole episode. And we've done them before on 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 Marcuse and so on and so forth. I mean, I could go on right. and on about how, um, to be blunt, yeah, I mean, I would argue that the way we have, have constructed our society in terms of comfort and technocratic whatever, I mean, yeah, it's it's unethical, morally bankrupt, but easy. That's why we continue to do it, right? We're, mm-hmm. we're lazy and and maybe that's an evolutionary trait, like get get access to resources as easily as possible, work smarter, not harder, blah, 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 blah. But but that's what he's talking about here. And 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 finding a way to again moderate oneself is so difficult. In fact, that's why I always make the joke that in terms of like pure, like what what Buddhism was meant to be, nobody in the West, and, and in fact, most of the East at this point can practice it because like Buddhism, and I don't think Camus is even motivated remotely by Buddhism, but Buddhism is moderation, right? It is the middle path. Like that's, that's, that's part of what we find from the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path is that like there is a middle way, right? Like that's one of those important things. And again, I don't know if Camus read any of the sutras, but regardless... I always make the joke that a Western or maybe like a Western Buddhist is not really a Buddhist, right? Because they mm-hmm. just the way our society is structured, it is Im- almost impossible to practice moderation. We're guilty of it, you and I both. So it's so mm-hmm. we're seeking it while also being part of it. You know, all you can do is try and like there's a spectrum of exploitation and subjugation, right. and, and I try and like be as least on that spec as low on the spectrum as possible. But that's but what he's saying is true, even in my own personal life. It is so hard. It is hard reading food labeled. It is, it is hard always buying like used electronics or clothes or what. Like it, that. Like that's hard. It's easier, you know. It's easier just to jump on Amazon or something, you know. So, no, hundred percent. Yeah. All right. Next section is beyond nihilism, and this is when he says like we can get past it. Essentially, he says, "Quote: There does exist for man, therefore, a way of acting and of thinking which is possible on the level of moderation to which he belongs." Every undertaking that is more ambitious than this proves to be contradictory. So the second he's saying, the second you go into excess is when you create contradiction for yourself and for your rebellion is his point, right? Quote, the absolute is not attained nor above all created through history. Politics is not religion, or if it is, then it is nothing but the inquisition. That line's fire. I just want to say politics is not religion, or if it is, then it is nothing but the inquisition. How would society define an absolute? Perhaps everyone is looking for this absolute on behalf of all, but society and politics only have the responsibility of arranging everyone's affairs so that each will have the leisure and the freedom to pursue this common search. History can then no longer be presented as an object of worship. It is only an opportunity that must be rendered fruitful by a vigilant rebellion. 
And the whole reason I read that long quote is because this is a term I think that's important. Camus' answer essentially to this entire question is a vigilant rebellion, a rebellion of moderation, which has limits, which prevent it from devolving into totalitarianism and excess murder, right? Anything there? Yeah, I mean, as a history, as the history person here, yeah, for sure. I, I, I would argue that even though I love teaching history and doing the research and, and deconstructing um, ethically constitutive stories and exhuming subjugated knowledge and all these cool catchphrases we've, we've used in other podcasts before, I would argue one of the, my favorite parts of, of teaching history is to rebel against the history I'm teaching, right? Like to challenge everything that we've learned of this, rather than celebrate it, rather than celebrating all the actions of the past, challenge them. Because it is those actions of the past that we're talking about that don't practice this moderation he speaks of. So we're learning history here to actually like act, learn from it, I think is what he's arguing. That it's good because he uses numerous historical, historical examples. He himself was a pretty strong historian for being more of a, a, a social thinker. He uses numerous examples, not again to ever celebrate those histories, but to put them out there to challenge them. He uses them as examples of what not to do. And I think that's where we're at. Like, and you can do this for all of history. And, you know, one of his charges against Marxism is that it's a revolution for history in the name of history. And this quote here, he says, quote, it is those who know how to rebel at the appropriate moment against history who really advance its interests. So he says the revolutionaries that are revolting for history are not doing anything to advance history. It's those that at the right time revolt against history that actually contribute to its evolution and its uh, progression. Well, and that's what we always talk about. We do it on the first day of every class. One of the reasons we got into this discipline, our respective disciplines specifically, is because we are on a trajectory that we find unsustainable, unsustainable ecologically Mm -hmm. and economically and politically and socially. And we go on and on. Well, if that trajectory is unsustainable, why celebrate the path that got us here? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Quote, man can master in himself everything that should be mastered. He should rectify in creation everything that can be rectified. And after he has done so, children will still die unjustly, even in a perfect society. Even by his greatest effort, man can only propose to diminish arithmetically the suffering of the world, sufferings of the world. But the injustice and the suffering of the world will remain. And no matter how limited they are, they will not cease to be an outrage. So this is a little bit of, uh, I don't know, depression from Camus. And his whole book, Myth of Sisyphus, and the earlier sections of this book are about how the rebellion should not be a rebellion for hope. (laughs) I mean, he basically gives us no hope here because he says, even if we are successful, even if we can rectify in creation and rectify within ourselves every contradiction, you know, children will still die unjustly, even in a perfect society. That our goal should be to minimize, diminish, he says, the sufferings of the world as much as we absolutely can. But even if we achieve what we set out to achieve, there still will be injustice and suffering in the world, and it will still be an outrage. Thoughts on that? Not a lot. Sounds like the modern argument for harm reduction. Mm -hmm. Contemporary materialism also believes that it can answer all questions. But as a slave to history, it increases the domain of historic murder and at the same time leaves it without any justification, except in the future, which again demands faith. In both both cases, one must wait. And meanwhile, the innocent continue to die. For 20 centuries, the sum total of evil has not diminished in the world. 
anything there? That last yeah. sentence, I think, is quite the claim. I mean, it kind of goes back to what I just said, right? Like that that celebration of the past, right? The trajectory we're on mm-hmm. does nothing for us. It's practiced no moderation. It's been linear. Um, so one way um, to vigil- vigilantly rebel not even a word vigilant whatever does not matter is to challenge that that history and i mm-hmm. think that's where we're at like i get that he's mm, thinking through this a little bit himself and probably a little bit depressed about the fact that there might not be this like radical shift or this paradigm shift mm-hmm. um but i'm not picking up on that i'm i'm actually um for me it's kind of inspirational in this idea that if we can challenge this historical trajectory perhaps we can find a way to moderate which is what he's looking for yep then he has one final critique of totalitarian Marxism, which I think is really good. Um, he says, quote, the men of Europe abandoned to the shadows have turned their backs upon the fixed and radiant point of the present. They forget the present for the future, the fate of humanity for the delusion of power, the misery of the slums for the marriage of the eter- mirage of the eternal city, ordinary justice for an empty promised land. They despair of personal freedom and dream of a strange freedom of the species, reject solidarity, death, and give the name of immortality to a vast collective agony. They no longer believe in the things that exist in the world and in living man. The secret of Europe is that it is it no longer loves life. It bl- its blind men entertain the puerile belief that to love one single day of life amounts to justifying whole centuries of oppression. He continues a little later on, quote, For want of something better to do, they, the Marxists, deified themselves and their misfortunes began. These gods have had their eyes put out. Kaliev and his brothers throughout the entire world refuse, on the contrary, to be deified in that they refuse the unlimited power to inflict death. They choose and give us as an example the only original rule of life today, to learn to live and to die, and in order to be a man, to refuse to be a god. At this meridian of thought, the rebel thus rejects divinity in order to share in the struggle and destiny of all men. Any thoughts on that one? Um, It's a terrible example because he did kill, but it always gets me thinking about um, Ernesto Che Guevara, this this Mm -hmm. quote, because even though he doesn't fit Camus' um, description perfectly here the way um, Kaliev does, in a way, it's one of the reasons why he ends up a god and on the t-shirts because he himself did not want to be that, right? When given that mm-hmm. choice, especially um, when we talked about it in the Cuban Revolution episodes that we did, when given that choice, he only spent a short time as a political leader after the Cuban Revolution before he realized that is not who he wants to be. He does not want to be that god. His job is to go out and perpetuate revolution and put his life on the line, whether it was in the Congo or in the jungles of Bolivia or in the mountains of Bolivia, I should say. Um and that's what makes him the consummate like hero. He was willing to just perpetuate the revolution endlessly um, and to kill and die for that cause rather than eventually like just call it good, become perhaps the dictator that a Castro did um, mm-hmm. and then and then forget how to moderate. And I think that's what it got me thinking about. Again, it's not as seamless as an example, perhaps as the uh, Kellyev example, but it's the one that got mm-hmm. me thinking. And that's why and that's why among the the global left, he remains the icon and Castro remains still the more controversial figure. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good example. And then one final quote from Camus and it's kind of a long one, but this is kind of how he ends out. Ooh, I, I had one more example though, real quick. Yeah, real go quick, ahead. Real quick. 
it also gets me thinking about Zapatismo, right? Like the, mm-hmm. the, the rebellion, which does have some socialist cues, some anarchist cues, some obviously indigenous Mayan cues, um, some um, liberation theology from the Catholic Church. It's got all of those things sim- synthesized into Zapatismo. But the one thing, the one thing that like kind of bridges it all together um, is that they um, challenge authority not to become the new authority, but to just continue to challenge all authority on a global level. So they themselves don't even want to become that authority. And that's what it also has me thinking about. Zapatistas, including, of course, the very famed subcomandante Marcos slash Galeano, never wanted to become the leadership that they so despised. So. Mm-hmm. Good. Quote. Our brothers are breathing under the same sky as we. Justice is a living thing. Now is born that strange joy with which helps one live and die, and which we shall never again postpone to a later time. On the sorrowing earth it is the unresting thorn, the bitter brute, the harsh wind off the sea, the old and the new dawn. With this joy, through long struggle, we shall remake the soul of our time, and a Europe which will exclude nothing. Not even that phantom Nietzsche, who for 12 years after his downfall was continually invoked by the West as a blasted image of its loftiest knowledge and its nihilism. Talking about Nazism there. Nor the prophet of justice without mercy who lives by mistake in the unbeliever's plot at Highgate Cemetery. Talking about Marx. Nor the deified mummy of the man of action in his glass coffin. Talking about Lenin nor any part of what the intelligence and energy of Europe have ceaselessly furnished to the pride of a contemptible period. All may indeed live again, side by side with the martyrs of 1905. That's the revolutionary uh, terrorists such as Kaliev that he's talking about. But on condition that it is understood that they correct one another, and that a limit under the sun shall curb them all. Each tells the other that he is not God. This is the end of Romanticism. At this moment, when each of us must fit an arrow to his bow and enter the lists anew, to reconquer within history and in spite of it, that which he owns already, the thin yield of his fields, the brief brief love of the earth. At this moment, when at last a man is born, it is time to forsake our age and its adolescent furies. The bow bends, the wood complains. At the moment of supreme tension, there 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 will leap into flight an unswerving arrow, the shaft that is inflexible and free. What do you think? I mean, it's it itself, it critiques romanticism and in and of itself, it is romantic. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's a fine conclusion. I mean, I, I mean, I even even kind of looking at the notes that you have, have provided for us here. I mean, you say one must rebel in moderation to prevent nihilism or totalitarianism. Um, and I agree with that. The, I think the problem here is us in the modern age are looking for like a self-help book, right? And when we're thinking about revolution Mm -hmm. or how to rebel, and we're hoping that in that last chapter, that last section, there is like the answer. And you and I are guilty of this. We've, we've even spoke to some authors of more modern revolutionary how-to books, so to speak, and always come away like underwhelmed with the concluding thoughts or even speaking to them directly. Um, and I just think that that is us with uh, or having 
too many expectations on these individuals. I mean, if we're looking mm-hmm. at great thinkers of the past and they weren't able to answer this question, how are we supposed to? Um, and I think that's kind of like this idea. And that's probably why he started writing all of these essays that eventually become the collection called The Rebels, because he himself doesn't necessarily have a specific answer. That's why it ends up being so kind of underwhelming, like moderate, like there is no how-to tactics, how to think moderation ends up being the way and to consistent. But here's the thing. Here's the thing that he says, never stop rebelling, never stop in that, um, uh, what we would call volunteerist, uh, spirit continuing mm-hmm. to challenge these systems of knowledge and power without giving us any specifics as to this will, what this will be, what happens next. And to forgive Marx a little bit, it's similar in that regard too. Like I know he just spent four chapters critiquing Marx, but Marx was very similar. And some of the critiques he had for Marx was that Marx was too vague. Well, he also is being vague. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess that's what I think. What do you think? So the overarching question of this book, right? We talked about how the myth, the question in the myth of Sisyphus was whether or not suicide was justified. Right. The question he's asking in the rebel is whether or not murder is justified. Yeah, I did not touch on that. Yeah. Well, go ahead. And he very clearly gives us an answer that murder is not justified. However, it is necessary, according to Camus. And the true rebel must fight against death even if killing while doing so, I guess. And that the rebel must be willing to accept his own death without becoming a martyr, without becoming deified, which I, without killing for an ideal, but, I mean, immediate, right? Like, that's why I think he uses the Kaliev example, because it's, you know, this one man took one life and then accepted his own death very cleanly and neatly within a very short period of time. He had the chance to repent and have his life spared uh, very clearly. And he specifically said, you know, no, I will not do that. I have killed and therefore must be killed. Right. That's why the Kaliev example is so clean for Camus. The problem is there's not very many examples of that. No, even, even the Che one certainly doesn't fit that regard. Che did not right. die willingly, um, for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. So, no, I, yeah, that's fine. I, I mean, if that, yeah, that being the case, I mean, this this ending does kind of crap out a little bit. Like, there's there's one example <laughs> that he could pull from. Out of all of human history, there's one guy. I mean, that, I'm sure there are more, right? But yeah. it's in this spirit that, according to Camus, we should rebel. I'm and, trying to think of like, other people in history that willingly died for their cause, but the the famous ones I'm thinking of were not killer. Gandhi was not a killer. Uh, if mm-hmm. Jesus of Nazareth actually existed, he was not a killer, right? Like these weren't killers. So, but even then, it's important. You say, you know, who are these people that died for their cause? I think that that's a really important distinction to make. And I guess Gandhi Camus did not would argue that we shouldn't die for our cause, that Kaliev even didn't die for a cause, that he died for a murder. You know what I mean? He didn't yeah, die enough. for revolutionary yeah, socialism. Enough. He died because uh, he committed murder, I think. is That's probably the, the best way that Camus could have worded it, right? right? He may have murdered for a cause, but he died for his murder, I guess, is a good way of putting it. So my final thoughts then are like so much of this, the, these essays, and again, that's what The Rebel is. It's a collection of essays. It's not like a, a narrative specifically, and it mm-hmm. wasn't all written at one time to be seamless, which is why I'm willing to admit those of you that are listening, if you're going to read this for yourself, you're going to, you're in for a little bit of a slog. We found it to be a little bit of a slog Mm -hmm. because it's, it's not, he didn't write it all at once. It's a collection of things. And so a lot of it overlaps and there's a lot of repeating and so on and so forth. But regardless, stepping away from that for a second, 
most of this is fire. His critiques of Marxism are fire. His suggestions, his historical examples are, are, are fire. There's so much good in here to come away with this with like a feeling of inadequacy because it's not the conclusion we want. It is not the how-to manual, how to feel about um, being a rebel in today's society. That's not fair. That's not fair for us to critique because again, he's, he's just a thinker. He's just a critical thinker. And nobody to this point in history has provided us that how-to guide that has adequately been able to help us navigate um, a society that lacks all moderation. So to expect that of Camus um, would be, I mean, it's, it's, you can't, you can't expect that of him. So I guess my final thoughts, um, a murder, not justified. Um, B this collection is great. Um, and C, uh, conclusion is inconclusive. What do you think? Well, and like, what would we expect, right? Would we expect Camus to conclude this by saying, yes, murder is totally justified, you know, grab your musket and go ham. Like, obviously he's not going to say that nor would he say musket in the 1950s, I guess, but whatever, you get the idea. (laughs) Nor is he going to say, you know, murder is absolutely not justified. We must lead a peaceful rebellion. Clearly, he's not going to say that. And he would never say any of those things because he doesn't actually believe in absolutes, right? It's this messy middle ground, you know, moderation. I also want to say one thing before we go, because I forgot to mention it earlier, which is why Kaliev is even a better example. So the assassination was actually supposed to take place. I think it was the night before but the coach that the Grand Duke was in, his wife and nephews were also in there. And Kaliev refused to throw the bomb because he didn't want to kill the nephews. And he actually, the play that Camus writes is about that night is the biggest act when he comes back after not throwing the bomb and him and the revolutionary socialists all get in a massive debate on whether he should have or not. And he basically says, if you decide tomorrow night that I should throw it when the kids are there, then I will but I don't feel good, right, et cetera. And then the next night, the kids aren't there, so he throws it. Um, But he does say that I would have killed his wife. Like, she is an accomplice to this oppression just as much as the Grand Duke, but I refuse to kill the kids. Um, So Kaliev even not only represents, right, this, he's willing to die for his murder, but he also represents this moderation, right? He refused to kill the children, which would have been excess, apparently, in Camus' eyes. It certainly was in Kaliev's eyes. Uh, so it's this, you know, middle path, this murder and willing to die for the murder and so forth. So that's Camus the rebel. Um, I hope we did it somewhat justice. I know we were kind of all over the place, but frankly, Camus is all over the place in this work. Um, so there's five episodes of the five parts. I was going to say, yeah, five, I mean, we got five hours of analyzing this collection of essays. We had to do it better yep. justice than a lot of others. So, right. Hope you enjoyed it. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. Later. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please leave us a rating in your podcast app. That will help more listeners discover our show. Also know that we have a YouTube channel where we post all of our episodes and other videos that we create. Just search for Revolution and Ideology in YouTube. If you really enjoy what we do and would like to support us further, you can do so at patreon.com slash revolution and ideology. Many thanks to our Patreon supporters who keep us motivated to create content. You can find more information on our website at revolutionandideology.com.